kind of the goal uh, of this seminar. It's a little bit different in that we don't have just one presenter being the, the talking head. We have three of us uh, being the talking heads this, this week. But it's not just going to be talking heads. We really want to, in, I think, engage uh, in good questions and answers and good dialogue. The first thing I want to say is I'm incredibly excited about this topic. I know if you've been here to other seminars, I say that at every seminar, right? I'm excited about this topic. That's part of the benefit of getting to plan the seminars. I get to pick topics that excite me. Uh, but this one in particular, this topic of spirituality, is one that I don't think we've thought enough about in the church. Uh, we think about you know, how do we live the Christian life, nuts and bolts stuff. But I don't know that we've zoomed back and thought systematically about how do we engage in the, the Christian life? What does it mean to be in a relationship with God? And how do we walk deeper in that relationship with God? So I'm excited to really tackle that, not just at the theoretical level, but also, again, some engagement with you and you know, rubber meets the road uh, kind of stuff. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, second, you have three different approaches to spirituality going to be unpacked uh, throughout the next three hours tonight, three hours tomorrow. Those three approaches to spirituality aren't to exclude other approaches. What, what I mean, well, I guess they kind of do. Okay, I'm going to be presenting on a churchly and sacramental spirituality, which kind of excludes a non-churchly and non-sacramental spirituality. But just to say you have a high view and, uh, of the sacraments doesn't mean that you have a low view of the Holy Spirit or that you discount uh, the, the sign gifts of healing or tongues. Or to be a mystic doesn't necessarily mean that you chuck your Bible away and don't engage in reading the Word of God. So they're not mutually exclusive categories, and I hope that we can think about how they complement one another, especially in the fourth session, the last session tomorrow. How do these different approaches to spirituality complement one another, dovetail? How are they incomplete, maybe, you know, as they stand on their own? Uh, the third thing, it's my sincere hope, truly, that everyone in the room tonight, tomorrow, uh, that their understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with God, that it will be stretched a little bit. I think for some of you, Dr. Brown's presentation on charismatic and Pentecostal spirituality will be comfortable and you'll feel at home there. And my presentation on sacramental spirituality will make you very uncomfortable. That's okay. I think <coughs> Carolyn's presentation on mystical forms of spirituality could make us uncomfortable. That's okay. I'd like to see us... Uh, our understanding of what it means to live in relationship with God expand and stretch. Because, and here I'm, I'm not speaking for Carolyn, I'm not speaking for Dr. Brown, this is just me. Okay, so don't read what I'm saying into them. I think American spirituality is pretty shallow. Uh, for us, typically what it means is we spend five, ten minutes a day reading our Bible, doing our daily bread, saying our prayers. I think we need to go deeper. Again, I don't want to impose my views on Dr. Brown or on Carolyn. Those things aren't bad. I think they're indispensable, but we can go deeper. And so I hope that this stretches our understanding of what it means to be spiritual. Uh, and then fourth, the last thing, and I want to be careful that I give you all the time that I promised you. I think that we, each one of us who are going to be presenting, will find things in the other's presentations that we'll really enjoy, really embrace, and probably some things that we'd want to critique, too. I think that, again, I'm saying the, pretty much the same thing I just said. I think you'll see the same. You'll find things in each one of our presentations that you'll like, you'll embrace, and probably things that you'll critique. 
And that's good. Don't think you have to swallow my presentation whole. Uh, let it challenge you. Let it stretch you. The same with each one of them. Um, at the same time, I don't want to take a salad bar approach to it. I like that. I like that. But I think it's good to ex- allow it to expand our understanding of spirituality. Is that good? I'd like to pray for us, and then I want to introduce Carolyn, if that's okay. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the, the privilege of being your children, the privilege of being in relationship with you. Father, we pray that it wouldn't be a privilege we take lightly, but that we would invest the time, the energy, to learn what it means to to walk in relationship with you and to grow in a deeper and a more abiding relationship with you. Father, we pray that you'd be with each one of the presenters. We pray that you'd give them clarity of thought and insight. We pray that you'd be with the people that are sitting in the chairs, that you'd give them great questions to ask, and that you would stretch all of our understandings of how you would have us relate to you. Father, again, we thank you so much for the privilege of being here, and we pray that you'd bless our time. In Jesus' precious name, amen. A few months ago, I asked Carolyn if she would be here and present on mystical forms of spirituality. Uh, I met Carolyn back in October at the seminar that Dr. Honeycutt led on evangelicalism and social justice. And I just asked her a little bit about what she was doing here at IU and what she was studying, and she told me, and it intrigued me. I can't say that I understood it all, uh, but it intrigued me. And I had been thinking about this seminar for more than a year. And so when she told me that she's studying the mystics and poetry and how you can use poetry to read the mystics, I was like, Wait, maybe this is a match made in heaven. You know, maybe Carolyn would be willing to come and present on mystical forms of spirituality. But I didn't know Carolyn that well, so I, I asked around to people who did know her. Sorry, Carolyn, I stalked you. <laughs> Don't know how else to say it. But everyone who knew her said she is just a sharp thinker. And the, the vote was unanimous. Everyone who knew her said, yeah, she'd be great. Uh, ask her to come and present. Uh, Carolyn's coming from... Well, Hope College, she received her B.A. from Hope College in Michigan and from The Ohio State University, uh, where she got her master's, and we're still letting her present. I don't know why, but uh, she's here doing her her Ph.D. studies in the English and Religious Studies Department. Since she's been here at IU, she's received, been the recipient of the Talbot Donaldson Fellowship and the Religious Studies Department's Graduate Essay Award. She's also the president of IU's... uh, the graduate and faculty ministry here at IU, and I know she's a good friend to several people in the room. So, Carolyn, uh, thank you again for setting aside the time to be with us today, and I, I know we'll all appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you letting me come, even though I did my master's at The Ohio State University. They're very particular about that B. But I actually grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it's um, my parents haven't disowned me yet, so I'm, I'm used to the tensions of moving from Big Ten town to Big Ten town. Um, okay, so I thought I would start by asking you all, because I think uh, mysticism is one of those um, weird terms that we might hear a lot, or mystical is a term we might hear a lot in the church, but we often have all kinds of weird associations with it. So maybe you actually have some notion of what um, mystical theology would be, and maybe you just hear this term at random on the street. So let me just start by asking you guys, when you hear mystical or mysticism, what do you think? 
And there is no, you can say anything you want, right? Because I know some of what you're thinking is probably a little weird. So when you hear mysticism or mystical, what do you think? Anybody? Visions. Visions. Okay, good. People having visions. What else? Okay, communion with God. Experiential. Experiential. Okay, good. Fasting for years. Fasting for years. Good. Living off the Eucharist. Some women claim they only ate the Eucharist. What else? If if somebody describes an experience as mystical, do you does it um, are are you more inclined to believe them or are you less inclined to believe them? I had a mystical experience. Do you immediately get suspicious, or do you immediately go, oh, I better listen up? Really problematize the notion of experience, and they say 
isn't, isn't um, describing mysticism in terms of in an experience that you had with God problematic in the same way that it's problematic to define your worship experience on Sunday morning based on whether or not you felt God, right? And we kind of have the sense that it's wrong to walk out of worship on Sunday morning and go, the worship was great, I really felt it. Or the worship wasn't great, I was bored, right? We have a sense that that's probably not the best way to evaluate worship. And the mystics say a similar thing about mysticism. You shouldn't define it in terms of your experience. And um, we also say, uh, McGinn says direct consciousness because we all as Christians acknowledge that God is omnipresent, but we're talking about a sort of heightened awareness and immediacy of God's uh, awareness, of, an immediacy of your awareness that isn't there normally even when we say God is here, um, God is always with us. And then finally, um, presence, not union. Union is often another term associated with mysticism. But mystics, the people we label mystics, use a whole bunch of metaphors to describe their encounters with God. Um, they use the language of ascent, of ecstasy or rapture, uh, deification or becoming like God. Uh, vision, having vision, and contemplation. So we want a term that can include more than just a union. Uh, the absence of God also becomes very important in mystical thought, but I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. So two different definitions, and I'm going to add one more to the list. Um, if any of you know Matt Nussbaum, he's the pastor at Exodus. I think he used to work here, yes? Um, and my husband and I go to Exodus. And Matt said a few weeks ago during communion, um, he described what was going on as he was inviting people up to, to communion as mystical, and my ears perked up, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go nail him and ask him what he means by mystical. And if any of you know Matt, this is a total Matt Nussbaum answer. He said, well, I think what I mean when I say mystical is that the invisible world is real. And um, Dr. Brown and I are going to give you two very different pictures of what it means to say that the invisible world is real. But when the mystics say the invisible world is real, what they mean is the interior of the subject, the soul, your soul, is real. And what goes on in that soul is very real. But mysticism, is a, there's a lot about interiority and um, sort of what goes on inside of you in mysticism. And this is important to remember, too, because sometimes you read mystical texts and someone's describing something and you're like, I have no idea what you're describing. Because they're trying to describe something that's going on inside of them, and, and we all know that there are times when that's difficult, right? We're putting that into words. This isn't a problem just for mystics, but it is certainly a, an ongoing problem in describing um, what we call mysticism. So um, I'm just adding to this list that mysticism means the invisible world is real. One other note before I dive in. Nobody practices mysticism with a capital M, at least not before the last hundred years. Um, with the sort of advent of New Age religions and sort of the sort of religious fusion we get, I think there are maybe people out there now who would say, I'm a mystic, and that's it, or I practice mysticism. But historically speaking, people were Christians and mystics, or Christian mystics. You have Jewish mystics, you have Muslim mystics, there are certainly mystical elements in Eastern religion, but people don't just practice mysticism. And there are um, scholars, for instance, who attempt to compare academically different types of mysticism, Personally, I don't actually think that's very useful, and I don't find that the people who do that have much to say that's really insightful about Christian mystics, right? I think there's a lot they miss. But the people that I'm going to talk to you about would all wholeheartedly say that they were pursuing with every ounce of their being the, the Trinitarian God that we find outlined in Christianity, and everything else that happens to them and everything else that they think about stems from that. So um, when I say mysticism, I'm talking about Christian mystics, and I think... There are things that make those folks and Christian mysticism quantitatively and qualitatively different from other types of mysticism. Okay, so um, mystics in scripture, Dan pointed out uh, a minute ago that sometimes we assume 
that mystics, because they're all about experience, aren't really all about scripture, and this just isn't true. From the earliest days of the church, people who comment on scripture are very interested in mystical interpretation. So Origen of Alexandria, who's really the first biblical commentator, the first person to take passages and verse by verse write a commentary on them, um, was very interested in the mystical meaning of scripture, especially the Old Testament. And he was an allegorical reader, so he would look for Christ allegorically figured in the Old Testament. Um, and then he would also look for allegorical interpretations of the New Testament that could apply to the individual. Um, this is just the way of reading scripture at the time. It's very odd to us sometimes with our sort of uh, more modern hermeneutics, but this is just, um, this is in the air. This is how people are reading scripture at the time. And one other thing about uh, Origen, just to, to note, he, um, he doesn't like a strong distinction between Eros and Agape. He says, and he's a good Platonist, Eros is the same thing as Agape, they're just different points on a continuum. And um, this becomes really, really important when you think about how the Song of Songs is going to get read, that we shouldn't separate off what seems sort of um, bodily or physical in the Song of Songs from what it might be allegorically signified. The one other um, commentator I want to draw your attention to is Gregory of Nyssa, who's one of the Cappadocian fathers who really sort of work out what it means, what the Trinity means. They agree that they agree on a definition at the Council of Nicaea, but Gregory, along with his brother Basil, and then Gregory of Nazianzus sort of hammer out what this actually looks like. And he wrote a very important commentary called The Life of Moses, in which he looks at Moses' life as mystical. And he's interested in Moses because he says Moses' experiences with God are all about the unknowability of God. Right, the I am, which at its heart, Moses' experience with the burning bush is about God's sort of um, being that is also totally unnameable. All, all that can be said is I am. Um, Moses ascending the mountain and then having to hide himself in the rock because he cannot look at God face to face. So Moses is all about, Moses' experience, experiences for Gregory are about what you can't know about God, about the limits of the human when encountering the divine. And that is something that we call apophatic mysticism or apophaticism, the, the ways in which God is unknowable to human beings, the ways in which our language cannot ever really get at him. We can sort of point ourselves in the right direction, but we can't ever truly contain him in our language. And then just some commonly cited biblical examples that show up in mystical writings all the time, so Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament, the transfiguration gets talked about as a mystical moment when Jesus ascends up and talks. With the angels. Um, Mary and Martha are often considered models of the contemplative and the active life. So Mary is a mystic, right, who sits at Christ's feet and just uh, sort of takes it all in versus Martha who's working. Uh, John 17, the language of um, where Jesus is praying that his disciples will be one with him and with one another. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, which is this weird moment when Paul says, I knew a man who was taken up to heaven. This gets read as Paul's mystical experience. And then 1 Corinthians 13, both in its priority on love, and also um, now we see through a mirror, then we will see face to face. This gets read as a sort of um, an explanation of what mysticism does, which is gives us glimpses of the face to face before we actually go to heaven. And then Ephesians 3, 3 through 9, and Colossians 3, 3 are other um, verses. Colossians 3, 3 is that um, your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and um, mysticism is often considered a sort of getting at that that hiddenness of your life. So these are just some common passages. There are more, but these are probably the, the most frequent. Then the one other thing we need to talk about before I give you some overview of, his, of some historical mystics is, is contemplation. Um, am I going too fast? Am I talking too fast? No, okay. I'm looking at the 
table of friends and family because they'll, they'll tell me if I am. Okay, so um, somebody asked me once what mystics do. I said, well, you, you study mystics. What do they do? And I said, well, they pray and they contemplate. And the person looking at me said, that's all? Uh, and I said, yeah, that's kind of all. So what do we mean by this term contemplation? And, and we can also say contemplative prayer. And you could think about contemplative prayer. Well, um, on your handout, there's a quote from Thomas Merton. And I have to say, I've given you long quotes because I am um, I'm a historian of Christianity, but I'm also a literary scholar. So it's important to me that you actually have these people's words. I want you to take them away, even if you never read them. There's part of me that's happy if you just walk out of the building having Thomas Merton in your hands. So I've given you more than I'm going to read to you. I encourage you, if you find this interesting, to, to take time to think over it when you, uh, when you leave. But here's what Thomas Merton, who is a 20th century mystic who lived in a monastery, most of his life in a monastery in Kentucky, not far outside of Louisville. Here's what he says about contemplation. Contemplation is the highest expression of man's intellectual and spiritual life. It is that life itself, fully awake, fully active, fully aware that it is alive. It is a spiritual wonder. It is spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life, of being. It is gratitude for life, for awareness, and for being. It is a vivid realization of the fact that life and being in us proceed from an invisible, transcendent, and infinitely abundant source. It knows the source, obscurely, inexplicably, but with a certitude that goes beyond reason and beyond simple faith. And I want to hone in on this distinction. It knows, contemplation knows the source. So this is the difference between knowing about God or knowing about someone and knowing someone. And for Merton, I think contemplation is about knowing God, not just knowing theologically what you can say about him, what he's like, but actually having a familiar uh, sort of relationship with him. Um, I'm going to give you some other definitions of contemplation. Contemplation, like mysticism, is well, they're very, they're very, they're almost the same thing, but it's hard to define. And like, like mysticism, contemplation, you're sort of always talking around it and never quite getting at it. Just like you can never quite get at what it, the experience of knowing someone. So I'm going to give you actually a bunch of other definitions to try to kind of paint a full picture. So I'm just going to put them up here really quickly, but to, to try to give you a sense of what people have said contemplation is. So. Contemplation is continual communion through all things by simply doing everything in the presence of the Holy Trinity. Contemplation is resting in God. It is the mind's loving, unmixed, permanent attention to the things of God. It is seeing through exterior things and seeing God in exterior things, Martin again. It is loving presence to what is. It is the mind stolen from itself by the ineffable sweetness of the word. For Dr. Fickle, and then um, contemplation is abiding with God. And I think contemplation is, um, the easiest definition would be to say that contemplation is being with God or becoming aware of the way in which you are with God or that you are in God. So contemplation has a lot to do with awareness, with focused attention, and with um, a sort of being, an experience of being surrounded by the love of God. Those are, these are some of the things. So when people ask you what mystics do, if you know nothing else, you can say they contemplate, and then you have to define contemplation, but um, then you can just refer back to Martin. So this is, this is what mysticism is all about. It's these things up here. It's resting in God. It's um, loving presence, being, knowing that you are loved, being in God's love, abiding with God. Um, this, is, this is really the heart of mysticism here. So what I'm going to do now is um, actually move to four historical mystics. And I want to give you um, 
brief overviews of their lives, of what it is they said. I've given you some samples of their writings. Um, because I think rather than just talking abstractly, it'll be better to see some of the most important themes about mysticism and mystical theology through these figures. Um, most of, well, two of them are medieval, two of them are early modern. I'm talking a little bit about Merton, and he's a 20th century figure, but these are, these are mystics from the periods that I'm most familiar with. There are earlier and later mystics, and if you have any names you want to talk about, maybe. So I want to start by talking about um, Bernard of Clairvaux. So Bernard uh, was born at the very end of the 11th century. He joined the Cistercian Order, which was a brand new monastic order that had been founded in 1098 to reform the Benedictine Order. New monastic orders always get started in order to reform old monastic orders. And um, he, he joins in 1113. Two years later, okay, let's just think about, like, think about church leadership. Two years later, he gets made abbot of a brand new house, which I guess is better that it's brand new. It's better to like start afresh than to have to step in um, to already established bureaucracies and relationships. But at a very young age, he becomes abbot, and he's abbot of the abbey at Clairvaux until his death. Um, he's known in the Catholic Church as the mellifluous doctor. I, I like this. And the reason he's named that is that his Latin prose is very, very rhetorically beautiful, and he was known to be an incredibly good orator, um, but also because he talks a lot about the love of God and the sweetness of God. Um, there are stories, we don't really know if these are true, but that women, Bernard went on a lot of preaching tours, that women, when he would come to town, would, would try to hide their sons and husbands, because he was so convincing that he would like preach people into the monastery. I mean, he would just sell the monastic life. So these women would be like, no, you cannot, you cannot go hear this man, because you'll want to, um, you know, have a chaste marriage for the rest of your life and go live in, in, a, in a monastery and I'll have to sit here by myself or I'll lose my son. So uh, he's known as the, the mellifluous doctor. Um, a few things about Bernard, a few important points. He really emphasizes personal experience in a way that nobody in the church had done yet. Um, he adds to the two sort of ways of knowing God, the book of scripture and the book of creation, the book of experience. He says we can know God in all these ways. And in fact, knowing God through experience for him is very different than knowing God, knowing about God when you learn about him. So he says, instruction makes us learned, experience makes us wise. So there's a, there's a difference here. And he also um, is, emphasizes the, the role of love, that knowledge is not enough, but that you have to love as well. And he um, responds to some of the sort of initial stirrings of what will become scholasticism, so the sort of the movement that produces the university, that produces Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus, it's just getting off the ground in the 12th century. And Bernard says, hey guys, this is a problem. You can't just think about getting to God with your mind. You have to think about getting to God who you love. And he quotes, along with a lot of other people in the 12th century, this famous um, line from Gregory the Great, love itself is a form of meaning. Um, and then just one other thing quick about uh, Bernard, sort of background about Bernard. He was very interested in the ordering of one's loves. And this is something that C.S. Lewis does in The Four Loves, right? He says, we have all these different kinds of love. We have love for all different things. We need to prioritize them. We need to figure out what order they should be in. And Bernard um, sort of participates in this. And he says, we need to order our love for God, and we need to understand the order of our love for God. So he says, we start out loving God for ourselves. I'm a sinner. I'm afraid of going to hell. I love God because he save me, and we need to advance through several stages to the point where we love God for no other reason than that he is lovely, that he is lovable. So the ordering of loves is very important for Bernard. So what makes Bernard a mystic? Well, um, the, the biggest thing, the, the thing I would want you to associate Bernard of Clairvaux's name with is his sermons on the Song of Songs. So I, I said um, 
I don't think I said, Origen wrote a really famous commentary on the Song of Songs when he read it allegorically as a relationship between Christ and the church. And some of you might know this becomes very common. This is, in fact, the way to read the Song of Songs. This shocked me when I first started studying medieval theology. Um, because we tend to read it in the evangelical church as a book about what, what marriage is supposed to be like. This is totally foreign to um, anybody who studies scripture up until 15 or 1600. That would be my guess. Don't hold me to that. But um, Origen writes about the Song of Songs as an allegory between about Christ's relationship with the church. Bernard says that's all well and good, but I also think it's about an, uh, a relationship between Christ and the individual soul. <coughs> so he writes 86 sermons. Um, he delivers them to his monks, but he also wrote them with a great deal. He composed them with a great deal of sort of care and attention. Um, and he emphasizes in these individual dimensions, and he emphasizes direct experience. So in Sermon 74, and this is um, on your handout, he says, um, I want to tell you, as I promised, about my own experience with this sort of thing. And he's, he's preaching about the song, right? So about my experience with what's going on here. And you're thinking you're celibate. You don't have an experience with what's going on here. Well, Bernard thinks he does. As often as he, Christ, has come to me, I have not perceived the different times of his coming. I perceive that he has been present. I remember that he had been there. Even now I admit that I don't know whence he came into my soul and where he went after he left it and by what way he entered and left. And this is one of the first moments where we see somebody in the history of Christianity trying to describe the experience of God's presence or the consciousness of God's presence. And I think if you think about it, you can probably see this in your own life. Um, what does it mean for, to sort of realize God is with you in, in a way? And when does that start? And when does, it, when does it seem to go away? It's actually hard to sort of pinpoint these things. We can see Bernard um, pointing out those difficulties. So he emphasizes um, direct presence. And he also, these sermons are all about God's love for us. And this is actually from his treatise on loving God. But I think that this sums up what he's trying to say to his monks in these sermons. Um, God is the reason for loving God. The measure of loving him is to love him without measure. This is a really famous quotation. Um, and he thinks, Bernard thinks, that love is really all that we can offer to God. Everything else that we can give to God is a, basically just returning to God what he's already given to us. But the only thing we can really independently or um, autonomously offer is love. And, and this is from Sermon 83, this, the start of the second quotation I've given you. Because love is sufficient for itself. It gives pleasure to itself and for its own sake. It is its own merit and own reward. Love needs no cause beyond itself, nor does it demand fruits. It is its own purpose. I love because I love. I love so that I may love. This is better in Latin, where it's the same word over and over again with just different endings. Um, it, it's, a little, it's a little cooler than English. Love is a great reality, and if it returns to its beginning and goes back to its origin, seeking its source again, it will always draw fresh from it and thereby flow freely. Love is the only one of the motions of the soul, of its senses and affections, in which the creature can respond to its creator, even if not as an equal, and repay his favor in some similar way. And he goes on to say, right, like, if God's angry with me, I can't be angry with him. God judges me, I can't judge him. God created me, I can't create, not in the same way God can. But God loves me, and I can love God, and that is something I can give to him. This is a really important point. And um, Bernard also wants us to advance to the point when we love God for no other reason than because of who he is. Um, a couple other things about ways that Bernard describes the love of God, and particularly the love that we see in the Psalms. He talks about the violence of love. He uses the word vehemence. Um, 
Um, and here's a quotation from Sermon 79. Oh, headlong love, vehement love, burning impetuous, which cannot think of anything besides yourself. So he, he's interested in the violence of love and the way that we maybe associate with sort of like um, adolescent love, right, where you're strongly moved by your feelings. Um, but he, he thinks that this is an image for how we love God and how God loves us. Um, he's also interested in contemplation and union, and this is why the Song of Songs and the image of marital love is so important for him, because um, sexual intercourse is one of the best images for sort of union, what, what it would mean to be united to something that we have. And um, Bernard quotes often, although lots of other mystics do, 1 Corinthians 6.17. And then finally is this point about um, spousal and marital love. And uh, here's a quotation from um, his sermons on the liturgical year that sort of um, starts to use this image of mar- love and marriage and of sexual intercourse uh, to, to think about what it would mean to be united with the divine. This is something we're not really comfortable with today. We think this is a little weird. I mean, maybe we talk about it occasionally, but it's not like a devotional aid, right? We don't read the Song of Songs and think, this is really about me loving God, or this is about me drawing closer to God. So this is very foreign to us. But hands down, this is what makes Bernard as influential as he is all throughout the Middle Ages. And um, after the Reformation, he stays super, super influential in, um, in Catholicism. And it's this, this image of marital love and erotic desire as an image for what it means to love God, to pursue God, and to seek union with him. Um, so a few, just a few points about, about his influence um, there's a phenomenon called bridal mysticism where um, people, especially women, have these visions or experiences or they have very, very sort of um, intimate prayers where they use this image of the bride and the bridegroom to think through their relationship with God. That really um, is due in large part to the sermons on the Song of Songs which circulated widely in the Middle Ages. Um, and all of these erotic metaphors that get picked up on and used throughout, um, throughout the Middle Ages are due to Bernard. Bernard also, interestingly enough, is um, in Dante's Paradiso, the last mediator Dante meets. So he, Beatrice, right, is his guide for the Paradiso, but she leaves him with, with Bernard. She leaves Dante with Bernard at like um, Canto 30 or something like that. And he is the one that sort of ushers Dante into that final beatific vision. So that's um, a kind of And so one other thing I wanted to say about this, all of this erotic imagery and this marital, this sort of image of marital love is... Um, giving us a picture of what it means to love God. And this is very weird to us, but I think if, if you think about it for a minute, it actually makes sense for a couple reasons. One, when we think about what it means to really want something, when we want to think about strong desire that will not go away, we go to sexual love, to erotic desire. This is, I think, our touchstone. When we want to think through what it means to be totally affected or taken over, we could say romantic, too. I don't mean to make this only physical, but when we want to think about desire that affects the body as well as the mind. This is the image we go for, and I think that's one of the reasons that Bernard is keying in on this element of the Song of Songs. And the other reason I think that um, erotic desire and erotic imagery gets used so often in mysticism is that um, sexuality is one of the places where we can see most clearly what it would mean to be united to someone, but to maintain your own identity. So in sort of sexual relations, there's this dialectic of I am myself, and I am becoming one with someone else, but I'm not losing myself, right? There, we, we see that those two things are sort of held together, held side by side in a way, that I'm fully myself, and yet I fully belong to somebody else. And I think that's the other reason that the mystics so often use these metaphors, because this is a picture of what it means to be united to God, to be fully yourself, but to also be completely losing yourself. 
Um, so that's Bernard. Make sure I said everything I wanted to say. Okay, now I want to talk for a minute about um, Julian of Norwich. And we have a little object lesson. Matt's going to hand around almonds. These really should be hazelnuts, but hazelnuts are expensive. <laughs> and so you're getting almonds. So pretend that they're round. Just take the almond and pretend that it's round. Um, and you may keep it or you may give it back to me at the end, whichever, whichever you would like. Um, okay, so a little bit of background, background while Matt hands those around. Julian of Norwich was an, uh, was an English woman, and she lived in the late 14th and early 15th century. She had an extremely, um, an extremely bad illness at age 30. She tells us, tells us this, and on May 8th, 1373, she almost died. The priest came to give her her last rites. Her mother was there. And while she's sitting there thinking she's going to die, the priest holds the crucifix out for her, and she receives these 16 visions, well, 15 visions, and then one the next day to sort of affirm that she was supposed to have these. And um, after she has these visions and after she gets better, she becomes an anchoress. Does anyone know what an anchoress is? Because this is one of the neatest, like, random little things that Christians did that we think are really weird today. An anchoress or an anchorite, if you're a man, is somebody who locks themselves into a cell for the rest of their lives. And the cell was attached to a church. This is a picture of an anchor hold. We call the anchor hold. Um, there was a window facing into the church so that the, the anchor right or anchorist could see the mass being performed and could receive um, the Eucharist and hear and have someone hear their confession. There was a window facing to the, to the outside world so they could receive visitors. Uh, anchorites and anchoresses were often very popular. People came to them for advice. Um, there is this really great guide uh, for, written for anchoresses about 150 years before Julian where the, the priest writing the guide says, um, you have to be really careful because people will want to like use you as the post office because you don't go anywhere. So they're going to want to like leave things with you, and you can't do that because you're supposed to be doing this so that you can love God, not so that you can like hold on to people's stuff. Um, people brought them food. Two, we have two wills that leave bequests to Julian of Norwich, so people would sort of leave something in their will, I want to make sure that this person has these things for the rest of their life or whatever. Um, and the whole point of this is, is to contemplate, to pray. Um, when you were locked in, often bricked into your anchor hold, you received your last rites. And there was the notion that this was, you were dying to the world, you were going to spend the rest of your life in the cell, you were going to die there, and the whole purpose of that is so that you can love God, right? You're going to do nothing else but pray and love God. And so after she receives these visions, Julian becomes an anchoress. And um, there are two versions of her visions. One that seems to be written, we call it the short text, fairly soon after she received the visions. And then over the next 20 years, she goes back over, she meditates on these visions, she thinks through them, she prays, and she writes then the long text, which is her sort of expanded theological reflections on the things that she's seen. It's um, the first, arguably the first book in English by a woman. And it's one of the best, it's one of the most original theological works in the English language, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, if you look at what else is going on theologically, um, there's a lot going on in Latin, right? But it is one of the most original theological works in the English. So um, these, the text, it doesn't have a title because texts and manuscripts often don't. We call it one of two things, either the showings or the revelation of divine love. And there's an emphasis, as you can see in the showings throughout Julian's text, on sight. They are showings, they are visions, they are things that she sees, but she also sees as a form of comprehension, like when we say, oh yeah, I see, you know, I understand. And then she also reflects on these for 20 years. So there's the continual sort of going over, she's holding them in her mind in a way. So sight is really important. 
And um, this is why I have given you an almond. So what I want you to do is actually put the almond in your hand, if you'll hold on to it for a minute. And I'm going to read you this quotation from Julian. And I want you guys just to think about what she's saying about a hazelnut. You're pretending this is a hazelnut. Just round off the edges in your mind. And um, think about what point she's trying to make by using this image of a physical object. And let me just see my quotations. Okay, here we go. So, uh, chapter five. In this vision, he, God, also showed me a little thing the size of a hazelnut in the palm of my hand. And it was as round as a ball. I looked at it with my mind's eye and thought, what can this be? And the answer came to me, it is all that is made. I want you to think about that almond. All that is made. Everything that you can imagine existing in that almond. I wondered how it could last. For it was so small, I thought it might suddenly disappear. And the answer in my mind was, it lasts and will last forever because God loves it. And everything exists in the same way by the love of God. In this little thing, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. The third is that God cares for it. We need to know the littleness of all created beings and to set at nothing everything that is made in order to love and possess God, who is unmade. So let me ask you a question really quickly. If you look at that almond in the palm of your hand and you try to imaginatively stuff everything that you know exists into that almond, what kind of happens in your brain? How do you, how do you have to rethink everything you know? Or how do you have to rethink creation? What kinds of mental moves are you asked to make? Well, it just makes me expand my view of God. Good. So something has to be bigger than that. Something has to be God then. Okay, good. Inversely, everything that you thought was big has to be condensed down. Great. Anything else? I think that kind of sums it up right there. <laughs> yeah, it, this, this image is meant to show us, I think, in some ways, the expansiveness of God and the littleness of everything that we think is so important, right? All of the things that we value, that we hold dear, all of our own worries and concerns, they become so small and God becomes so big when we think about this. Um, but all of this happens through this sort of careful meditation on an image and on an image that would have been very recognizable to Julian's audience, right? Hazelnuts are common in the UK. And she does this a lot. She chooses what we often call homely images because this is a word Julian uses. And she uses them to describe what's going on, what's going on on the sort of um, larger theological level. Um, and this then connects up to her, her use of images and physical objects, connects up to her focus on Christ's incarnation and the importance of embodiment. So she receives these visions while she is dying of what was probably the plague, we think. And she's going through a great deal of bodily suffering. And she says while she's having this, this illness and all the suffering, she says, I desired a bodily sight of Christ's passion. And while she thinks she's dying, she's having all this physical suffering, she receives this incredibly vivid vision of the passion, right, of Christ on the cross. And so there's this, um, I don't want to say quite conflation, but her suffering in a way becomes Christ's suffering, or her suffering makes her gives her a way to embody Christ's suffering or to understand Christ's experience of embodiment. And this also connects up to these images that she uses. So she's very interested in the physical world and what it, how it's meant to communicate to us about God and what it is meant to communicate to us about God. 
Um, a few of the things about Julian, the Trinity is, is absolutely essential to her theology. She focuses a lot on Trinitarian theology. Um, I, I love this quotation, for the Trinity is God, God is the Trinity. The Trinity is our maker, the Trinity is our keeper, the Trinity is our everlasting lover. The Trinity is endless joy in our bliss, and our Lord Jesus Christ, and in our Lord Jesus, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and in our Lord Jesus And within the Trinity, she has another sort of famous point. She describes Jesus as mother. And I think we get really antsy about this, especially evangelicalism, because we're very wary of of liberal theology, and we don't want to fall off the bandwagon, and um, we want to sort of stay true. But I I love Julian for this, because she describes Jesus as mother, but she, she keeps the masculine pronoun, so she'll say, he is our mother. So she's not sort of losing that. And what she means when she says that Jesus is our mother is that he cares for us, he nurtures us and nourishes us, in the way that a mother does. So just like mothers feed us out of their own body, she says Christ feeds us by his body in the, in the, in, um, the sacraments. She says just as children run to their mothers when they are sick or hurt or frightened, we run to Christ. Um, so she maintains sort of Christ's divinity. Um, she maintains a, a high view of the incarnation. But she ascribes all of these wonderful characteristics to Jesus. And we often we will say things like, um, God reflects the best qualities that we associate with men and women, or right that it takes both men and women to fully reflect the divine image. And I think that Julian is is trying to do that, but she's she's sort of ahead of her time in a, in a really wonderful way. So people say to you that Julian of Norwich was all about Jesus's mother. You can you can nod now and know that you don't have to throw up your like liberal theology warning warning flags. It really is okay. Um, one other thing I want to say about Julian uh, is a little bit about her view of sin and providence. This is the the famous Julian quotation that most people know. So Julian says, um, But Jesus that in this vision informed me of all that me needed, answered by this word and said, quote, Sin is behovely, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Now, um, behovely, behovely, some people translate as necessary. This is a mistranslation. Um, Behovely in Middle English is somewhere between necessity and contingency. So it's somewhere between it had to happen and it was totally... Um, arbitrary. It was just this random act of free will that it, that it did come about. And this is, um, for those of you who know Aquinas, this is similar to Aquinas' notion of sort of fittingness, somewhere between voluntarism and locking God into God had to do things this way. Um, but I want you to remember, and I wish we had time to talk more about this, but um, I, I could have gone on for the whole presentation just about Julian. She's a chapter in my dissertation. I want you to think about that almond. And I think when she says sin is behoovely, she's got that hazelnut in her mind. And she's thinking everything that is created, including evil, which isn't really created for her. Evil, she's very obstinate. Evil, evil is sort of a hole in the good, right? Like sin is a, a lack, an absence. Um, but she's got that image of the hazelnut. And she's got that image of God's expansiveness. And, then, and out of that, out of those sort of holding those things together, she says, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things will be well. Um, so that is Julian and Norwich. Oh, um, yeah. All right, two more, and then we're going to get to the q and I'm going to talk now about Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. So we're going to jump forward to the 16th century, um, right after the Reformation happened. But we're sticking with the Catholics. Thanks for today. Um, okay, Teresa of Avila was born in 1515. She joined the Carmelite Order. The Carmelite Order has a special emphasis on contemplative prayer. Um, she had started receiving these spiritual favors. She had these, okay, so when, when you think of um, mysticism as these really crazy experiences, sort of ecstatic experiences, this is when you think of Teresa. She starts receiving what she calls spiritual favors. 
Um, but this happens about 20 years after she's been in the Carmelite Order. So she spends a long time just sort of humdrumming through life. And she talks about the, um, the ways that the monastic life has become distorted, at least in her, in her monastery. So nuns are supposed to sort of live lives of seclusion and contemplation. They're supposed to spend lots of time in silence. And she says, instead, what did we do? We gossiped with our friends when they came to visit us. And we talked about one another behind their backs, our backs. And we didn't really get along very well. And we were very petty. And so she talked about all of the, the sort of problems that you can imagine when you get a community of women who all live together for a very long period of time. <laughs> and um, once she starts receiving these spiritual favors, she says, hey, we've got to, this is the problem. We're not supposed to be living like this. We need to fix this. And she starts this massive reform effort of the Carmelite order. As a result of that reform effort and of her spiritual favor, she gets a lot of opposition and sort of kickback from her spiritual superiors, who are both suspicious of whether or not these sort of ecstatic experiences are from God or from the devil, and also just some of them are not really interested in reform. They'd rather keep things the way that they are, and, and they want to sort of them back. So she eventually gets through, and she was made in 1970, interestingly enough, a doctor of the church, one of two women who the Catholic Church acknowledges as doctors of the church, um, Teresa and then Catherine of Siena. So um, what I really want to talk to you, what I want to sort of use Teresa to talk to you about is two things, um, mystical itineraries and then sort of mystical ecstasy. So a lot of mystics have a, a sort of um, pattern or structure, an itinerary, a series of, of steps or phases or what you will um, that they put together to explain what it means to sort of live a contemplative life. And Teresa has two of these. She gives one in her vita, which is just the Spanish word for life. So when she starts getting this sort of opposition um, her confessor says, you need to write down uh, basically an autobiography and I'm going to take it to the people who are suspicious and I'm going to show it to them and you will vindicate yourself. And so she has one itinerary there and she has another itinerary um, in the Interior Castle, which is a book she wrote that is just about contemplative prayer. And I'm going to sort of show you the steps um, to those really quickly. So in the, in the Vita, she describes prayer as watering the garden of the soul. So she says the soul is like a garden and ha- you have to water it if anything's going to grow. You want things to grow because you want to grow spiritually, but you also want God to come and walk in the garden like he did in Genesis. And this is sort of where she gets this image. And for that to happen, your, your, your soul has to be a sort of place that will please God. And so she has four different stages. She says the first stage is mental prayer, which is just kind of like silent interior prayer, the way that we think of praying. And she says this is like, um, like having to tote water from a well by hand. You have to like get a bucket and carry it. It's a lot of work, and it's really hot and hard, and you get distracted, and you want to take breaks. And this is what mental prayer is like. And you may have to do this for years, Teresa says. Years. I mean, it took her 20 years before she started really advancing spiritually. But you just got to keep doing it, and your, your garden will grow. And then the second phase is the prayer of quiet. When you start to find yourself, um, sort of to find a sort of interior stillness, you can focus. You don't get distracted as much. She says this is like a water wheel where um, something else is sort of turning the water for you, but you still have to do some of the work of getting it from the water wheel to the garden. The next is the devotion of union. And, and this is, um, too, one of those places where, you, where somebody else's interiority is kind of hard to understand. Because sometimes I read these and I think, Teresa, I don't understand the difference between this phase and that phase. Um, but she says that the devotion of union is um, when, you, when you sort of start becoming completely oblivious to the world around you. When you're sort of taken up in some way into God. She describes this as um, like a, a river or a brook running through a garden. Um, sometimes you have to channel it, but you don't have to do all the work. 
And then finally, devotion of ecstasy is when you're sort of completely transported, taken out of yourself, experiencing God in some radical way, oblivious to what's going on around you. And she says, this is like a thunderstorm. Right? There's nothing you can do about it. It comes and it goes when it will. But, but when God is there, he is, he is totally there. And then in the interior castle, she says that this, uh, this sort of mystical itinerary is made up of seven mansions in this castle that is the soul. And uh, mansions one through three are ordinary or active prayer, prayers as part of the liturgy, prayers that you just offer to God, prayers that you pray from somebody else, you know, a written prayer that you pray. And the mansions four through seven are contemplative prayer, um, where you're meditating on God or um, trying to maintain silence or stillness or something like that. The final mansion is, again, the mansion of sort of ecstasy. So Teresa has these two mystical itineraries. Lots of mystics have itineraries. Um, I'm trying to give a couple other famous ones. Um, St. Bonaventure has this text, The Journey of the Soul into God, right, where there's, there are these phases of the soul journeys into God. Another mystic, Walter Hilton, writes a text called The Scale of Perfection, right, where it's, there are like these rungs, kind of levels of prayer that you reach. So this, this sort of mystical itinerary is, is very common. One thing that I think is really interesting about the interior castle is that lots of times these itineraries of sort of you pray like this and then you pray like this, they feel very linear. I do this and then I do this and then I do this. And you're kind of wherever you are, I pray like this or I pray like this or I pray like this. In the interior castle, there's, I, I don't think Teresa gives us that impression of, of linear progression. There's kind of a sense that you can move around. Sometimes you're in mansion one and sometimes you're in mansion four and then sometimes you go back to mansion three. So um, that, that how you pray will change, not just, um, won't just progress, but will sort of, there'll, there'll be some back and forth over time. And then the other thing that um, Teresa is most well known for is her mystical ecstasies. And this is the, the famous representation of her ecstasy. Um, it's a statue by Bernini um, that's at Santa Maria de Vittoria in Rome. And um, I'm going to just read you a minute. Uh, this is, again, this is, the, this is, I think, what people think of when they think of mysticism, often stuff like this. Um, so this is a, a selection from her, her Vita when she describes what happens to her in these states of mystical transport. She says, Our Lord was pleased that I should have at times a vision of this kind. I saw an angel close by me on my left side in bodily form. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. I saw in his hand a long sphere of gold, which is in the statue. Um, and at the iron's point, there seemed to be a little fire. He appeared to me to be thrusting it at times into my heart and to pierce my entrails. When he drew it out, he seemed to draw them out also and to leave me all on fire with the great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan, and yet so surpassing was the sweetness of this excessive pain that I could not wish to be rid of it. The soul is satisfied now with nothing less than God. This pain, the pain was not bodily but spiritual, though the body has its share in it, even a large one. It is a caressing of love so sweet that now takes place between the soul and God that I pray God of his goodness to make him experience it who may think that I am lying. During the days that this lasted, so apparently this went on for days, during the days that this lasted, I went about as if beside myself. I wished to see or speak with no one, but only to cherish my pain, which was to me a greater bliss than all created things could give me. May he be blessed forever who has bestowed such great graces on me, who has responded so ill to blessings so great. Um, so a few things about this experience. One, there's this conflation of pain and pleasure, right? She says it was, it was painful, but it was the most pleasing thing that ever happened to me, um, which is something we often see in mystical experience, that things that, that seem to be opposed get, get somehow magically realigned. 
Um, this also has erotic tones, which some of you may have picked up on. People have often talked about this statue as a sort of sexual depiction of this event. Um, but I think, you know, if you, going back to Bernard of Clairvaux, we can see why Teresa might have used that imagery. She wants to sort of talk about what it means to be in this kind of state with God. And then this ecstatic, this ecstatic experience, um, I don't want to say it's new, but the sort of focus on this transport, this sort of being taken out of yourself, um, rapture is often used to describe this experience, and rapture literally means being seized or being sort of seized out of yourself. The, the detail of this experience, the detail with which Teresa describes it, is, is kind of new. This is something we get at this moment in the 16th century, which is, which is interesting. So, again, if you hear mysticism and you think of this, you should think of this, but you shouldn't think only of this, right? There's a lot more to that, to that term than just what we see in this, this depiction, in Bernini's depiction. Okay, and then finally, Teresa's contemporary, John of the Cross. So John comes from a very similar background to Teresa. He actually grew up right outside Avila in Spain. Teresa and John both came from Converso, fam Converso families, which were, um, they both had great-grandparents who converted from Judaism to Christianity. Um, there was also, there were also a lot of families um, who were called Moriscos in this area of Spain who converted from um, Islam to Christianity. And there was a lot of concern at the time about whether these people were really Christians. So... <laughs> This is, the, this is the problem with the Inquisition, right? They were pressured to convert, and then there was all the suspicion of their conversion. So it was sort of like, you really better convert or life's going to be hard for you, but now that you've converted, we're really not sure if you're a Christian or not. Um, but uh, John's grandfather was actually killed and all of his possessions seized because somebody suspected that, he hadn't, that his conversion wasn't true. Of course, how would you measure true conversion? That's, that's a problem here, too. Um, but this is important because Teresa and John have sort of semi-marginal status in Spanish culture at this time. And um, part of the suspicion of both of them is probably due to the fact that they had this problematic family history. So um, John grew up very, very poor. They moved around a lot. He um, joined the Carmelite order and then through the order was able to go to the University of Salamanca where he studied theology. And um, he wanted to become a Carthusian. And Carthusians were a monastic order that was... Um, Eremitic. So they, her they were hermits. They lived in these individualized cells. They hardly ever talked to one another. It was um, kind of like being an anchoress, only they really tried to cut down on the, on the visitors. <laughs> they went and lived out in the wilderness. So John wanted to do this, but then he met Teresa. And he fell in love with her reform efforts. She wooed him over to become a discalced Carmelite. So the, the reformed order that Teresa started, they're called the discalced Carmelites, which li literally means shoeless, because they wanted to return to this... Um, monastic idea of the apostolic life where you don't really own anything, you have hardly any clothing, and you don't even have shoes. Um, the idea being that you don't travel very far, you don't need very much. And um, so John becomes a discalced Carmelite and starts reforming the male houses. Uh, the men like this even less than the women did. And in, um, so John meets Teresa in, in 1567. In 1577, he is um, kidnapped and imprisoned by Carmelites who are mad that he would not listen to the um, friar general of the Carmelite order in Spain. John says, I don't have to listen to him. The papal nuncio, so the, the pope's representative in Spain, told me my reform efforts are, are authorized by the pope himself. I don't have to listen to him. His brother said, no, you do, you're a Carmelite, you're still accountable to the order. They kidnapped him and they imprisoned him for um, nine months in a cell that was so small he could hardly turn around. He was beaten publicly on a weekly basis. He was beaten in front of the rest of the order. 
um, he eventually broke out, and he wrote a large portion of his, of his corpus while he was imprisoned in this tiny little cell. One of the friars guarding him would smuggle him paper. And in this teeny tiny little cell, he wrote um, some, some of what are called the most famous works in the Spanish language. So if you study Spanish literature and you take a class in Renaissance Spain, you will read Teresa and you will read John. So he wrote um, two poems, um, The Dark Night of the Soul and the second, I can't remember the title, I think it's called The Canticle of Love. Um, but he wrote two poems and then he wrote commentaries on his own poems, explaining to everybody what they mean. And um, John of the Cross, again, if you want to sort of associate things, things with people, associate The Dark Night of the Soul with John of the Cross. So he um, writes this poem about the dark night of the soul, and I've given you a couple excerpts. Because it's in Spanish, I put the Spanish up too. Um, but he says, and in his poetry, he compares the soul's journey to God like a lover creeping out at night to find the beloved. And here's just a couple of stanzas. On a dark night, kindled in love with yearning, oh, happy chance, I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. O night that guided me, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that joined beloved with lover, lover transformed into beloved. And this is the image for John of what it means to sort of go towards God, because you're, the, the lover has to go through the night. You have to sort of sneak out and you can't see things, it's hard to know where you're going, but you're driven on by desire for the beloved, for Christ. And so you, you press on anyway. Um, he then goes on and writes this extensive commentary, and he describes the experience of spiritual dryness or um, a sense of the absence of God very, in very um, sort of moving terms. And this is something that uh, mystics have sort of talked about, but no one had really formalized or sort of put into words that experience of, of God's absence after you have sensed his presence quite as powerfully as John of the Cross does. Um, and we've put an excerpt from... The Dark Knight from the commentary on this poem on your handout. And he says at the start, Why does the soul call the divine light that enlightens the soul and purges it of its ignorance a dark night? The answer to this is that for two reasons, this divine wisdom is not only night and darkness, but also pain and torment. The first is because the divine wisdom is so high that it transcends the capacity of the soul, and therefore in that respect is darkness. The second reason is based on the meanness and impurity of the soul, and in that respect, the divine wisdom is painful to it, afflictive, and also dark. And then I'm just going to flip to the end really quickly. Um, it is amazing and pitiful that the soul's weakness and impurity is so great that the hand of God, so soft and so gentle, should now be felt to be so heavy and oppressive. For God's hand neither presses nor rests on it, but merely touches it, and that mercifully. For he touches the soul not to chastise it, but to grant it favors. So a couple things that John is doing here. One, he's re, sort of reframing. You feel like God is absent. You feel like you're being oppressed. But you need to understand what that might be coming from. Not, not anything that God's doing, but because of what it actually means, again, as a finite human being, to be touched by the infinite God. It might feel like oppression. It might feel like absence. But that may not actually be what's going on. This may be something God is doing in his mercy. Um, and this, no, um, the, the problem of God's absence, so John is the first one to sort of describe and treat this at length, um, which is why he's considered such a great mystical theologian. But the problem of God's absence, especially after God has seemed so present, is one that plagues mystics throughout the entire Christ history of Christianity. And I don't know if any of you remember, um, a few years ago, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta's journals were released, and there was this big to-do because so people sort of found out that like, for 40 years she didn't feel close to God. Well, um, everybody was shocked, except for people who study mysticism, <laughs> who were kind of like, well, yeah, 
This happens, I don't want to say a lot, and I don't, I don't want to say trite about it either, but this is a very common experience to, for mystics. They, they feel disconnected, they feel like they are in the desert, um, they feel that God is, is hidden in some way from them. And um, there are a couple, uh, a couple quotations to, to sort of think through this phenomenon of the dark night of the soul that I want to give you, to think through the problem of God's absence and, and the, the dialectic of his absence and presence. So Bernard McGinn says, if everything we experience is real, is in some way present to us, is not a present God, just one more thing. So presence and absence are these sort of human categories. I am present with you. We are present in this building. Um, can we really say that God is present in the same way that we are present to one another? Um, and in this vein, if we're, if we're stuck on the problem of whether or not a present God might just be one more thing or one more being in the way that you and I are beings, um, Simone Weiland says, says helpfully, if somewhat paradoxically, contact with human creatures is given us through the sense of presence. Contact with God is given us through the sense of absence. Compared with this absence, presence becomes more absent than absence. Absence. This is one of those things that you're meant to just sort of, it's meant to make your head ache, I think, in part. Um, but what I think she's trying to get at is that we, we, can't, we can't understand God's presence with us in the same way that we understand um, presence with one another. And in that vein, if God is absent, he might in fact be present with us in a deeper and more fundamental way than he was when we thought he was present. And this is, a, again, a problem that sort of plagues mystics and mysticism. Um, but I think that's why the, the image of the dark night of the soul is, is so useful. And I just want to then end by um, returning to the Thomas Merton quotation at the very, uh, that I started with, and we're going to skip down a little bit. I'm just going to read the second half of the first paragraph. Um, so he's sort of getting at this problem of God's access to. And he says, um, For contemplation is a kind of spiritual vision to which both reason and faith aspire by their very nature, because without it they must always remain incomplete. Yet contemplation is not vision, because it sees without seeing and knows without knowing. It is a more profound depth of faith, a knowledge too deep to be grasped in images, in words, or even in clear concepts. It can be suggested by words, by symbols, but in every moment of trying to indicate what it knows, the contemplative mind takes back what it has said and denies what it has affirmed. For in contemplation we know by unknowing, or better, we know beyond all knowing or unknowing. And I think that the knowing God beyond absence or beyond presence is what Bernard McGinn and Simone Bayer are trying to push us towards. That, that um, we need to understand God is existing beyond our notion of presence or absence, and in that sense, the absence of God can become a gift, right? It can become a time when you have to realize, as a Christian, that God is somehow beyond your experience of him um, or, your, or your memory of a time when he was present. So that's all I have. And we have until 7.30, right? Right. Okay. So um, any questions about people, theme things I've talked about, people I talked about, people I didn't talk about? Um. Great question.
Bernard Begin's six-volume history of mysticism has not yet made it to the, 14th, to the 15th century England or France, just Germany. So I don't know what he says, and he's kind of my authority on all things, right? Like when somebody says so-and-so mystic, I say, oh, does Bernard Begin talk about humor or not? I would say no, but this is a great point. Um, mystics are often under suspicion of heresy. Some of them are even put to death. Um, Marguerite Perret is burned in Paris in 1310. Um, for saying things that Meister Eckhart will say 50 years later, but he is also brought before the Inquisition. So um, Teresa was under suspicion. So there is mysticism and heresy. Mysticism often fringes off into heresy. I, I tried to give you thoroughly orthodox um, people to think about. But we also have lots of saints' lives where saints are doing really, really wacky things from the Middle Ages. Again, I'm a, I'm a medievalist primarily. So this is what I know the best. Um, but I would not count them mystics because we don't have their own writings to judge by. No. Okay. Other questions? Can you maybe say anything about the way that evangelicals have Oh yes, this is a great question. And I on your um on your on your handout with all the excerpts I've given you some further reading. So I would say by and large evangelicals have not thought about mystics. But the people who have are, are really quite good. Um, so people like Richard Foster, who have tried to sort of recover some of these disciplines of contemplation, of particular forms of prayer, of disciplines like silence, um, they often read the mystics and engage with them in really wonderful ways. So um, Richard Foster is someone who has. Also, I highly recommend on the further reading David Benner's book, Opening to God. I gave you um, Benner's definition of contemplative prayer, which is abiding with God. Um, I can say that this book transformed my prayer life last summer, and I do not say that lightly. I thought I knew what prayer was, I read this book, I now think prayer is something completely different, and it's been incredibly freeing for me on a personal note. I think that my prayer life is much richer, and my, my sense of communion with God is much richer, um, and Benner is engaging extensively. So there are evangelicals who are doing it, but they tend to be kind of on the fringes. This isn't a central part of, of what we think about when we think about the history of Christianity. I think because a lot of mystics are Catholic or Orthodox, with capital O, and uh, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church have a sort of more central role for mysticism and mystical theology than Protestants have tended to. Um, so I think we've, I think that might be part of why we shied away from engaging with, with people who are called, who we, we call mystics. Um, I think just the fact that they're Catholic.
I also think evangelicals in particular really are big on doing. They're big on the active life and activity. And this is great, right? This is why we can have a whole seminar on evangelicalism and social change. Because evangelicals love to do things. They love projects. They love reform in a way, although we don't usually call it that because we've had Rome Reformation and it's over. But that means that we're not as good at silence. We're not as good at stillness. We're not as good at, as good at this contemplative prayer business. And we get kind of edgy about it, like, what's going on there? Um, you know, what kinds of influences would I be letting in? Those kinds of things. I think Benner is really, really good at talking about contemplative prayer and sort of rooting it all in the word in scripture so that your prayer always starts with scripture so you don't have that anxiety about sort of opening yourself up to other other influences. Yeah, okay, well, 
also, I will say, I don't think I've ever had a mystical experience in the sense of like an ecstasy or rapture. I definitely haven't. Um, but when I read this vendor book last summer, well, I'm trying to think about why I liked mysticism in the first place. So when I started, I started by studying the Middle Ages. I really liked, I really liked the Middle Ages, and I think one of the reasons I loved it, these earlier periods is that Christianity became utterly foreign to me. I thought I knew what Christianity was. I thought I knew what theology was. I thought I knew what good Christian practice was. And all of a sudden in the Middle Ages, there are people doing all kinds of wacky things. And you go back to late antiquity, and it gets even wackier. And you've got Simeon Stylites on the top of a pole. And you've got these women who claim they only lived off the Eucharist. You've got people who um, flagellate themselves regularly as an act of penance. And I was like, what? This is Christianity? And I, I think I liked that wackiness because it, it sort of pushed me to try to understand God in new ways. And then I think I liked mysticism because when you think about mysticism, you have to think about yourself and about notions of the self and the subject in relation to God. And you also have to think about language. How do you talk about God? What does it mean to talk well about God? What are the limits of talking about God? And I think mysticism sort of threw all those things together and I was intellectually so I was sort of studying mysticism for a few years, and it, but it was mostly academic. I didn't, I didn't find this to be sort of part of my devotional life at all. And then I read this Benner book, and it was like, oh my gosh, all this stuff I read about, I never thought that I could actually do some of it. It was, it was just totally, Cindy actually read the book with me last summer. Every, it was like a broken record every week. I was like, I, I just never knew. I never, I never thought about it this way. And um, I had thought about prayer, even, even though I knew I wasn't supposed to think about prayer like I thought about prayer as things I think it got. And then, yep, sometimes I'm supposed to be quiet and listen, but quiet and listen, kind of hard, doesn't really work very well, I get distracted, okay, moving on. And Benner has all of these um, sort of other ways of praying and of thinking about contemplation that he calls from the mystics. And he says, look, here's how you would do this today. Here's what contemplative prayer would look like today. And um, it sort of transformed my prayer life, and it also transformed how I was reading a lot of, a lot of the mystics. And um, the, the subtitle of that book is Left, so the book title is Opening to God, Left You, Divina, and Life as Prayer. And he's really trying to sort of push, I think, us to think, what would it mean to, be, to pray without ceasing? If we're thinking about praying without ceasing, we can't think about thinking prayers at God, which even I knew was kind of wrong. But when I said I'm praying, what I meant was I'm thinking thoughts at God and asking him to do things or sometimes trying to, to sort of pray and, and um, you know, adore him or thank him or, you know, confess to him. But, um, so I, I found that coming at, and then since then I've read a couple of the Richard Foster books, and I think that's, those have been the most personally um, freeing for me and, and sort of um, have allowed me to embrace prayer and to love prayer. I, I thought of prayer as a discipline. I really did. Um, I thought of it as work. And when I read these books, I was able to see all the ways in which it's, it's sort of deep joy and delight, and it's somehow connected fundamentally to who we are and who we are in God. Um, so that's my, those are sort of maybe my, my most personal experiences. It's 7.30. So thank you so much. Thank you, Carolyn. Appreciate it very much.